message. God, we uh, do approach you this morning, and Lord, we confess our need and Lord, our dependency upon you and your spirit to give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. I pray that by your spirit, you'd fill us with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, that we might receive what you have for us in your word. So God, I pray that you'd convict us, that you would stir within us, Lord, longings to follow Jesus more faithfully. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Rob Bell, in his book, Love Wins, in which he denies uh, the future judgment of God and eternal punishment, uh, said this, God loves us. God offers us everlasting life by his grace freely, no merit on our part. Unless, of course, you do not respond the right way. Then God will torture you forever in hell. I don't know how you can believe in a God like that a loving heavenly father who will go to extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them would, in a blink of an eye, become a cruel, mean, vicious tormentor who would ensure that they had no escape from an endless future of agony. If your God is loving one second and cruel the next, if your God will punish people for all eternity for sins committed in a few short years, then there's no amount of clever marketing or compelling language, or good music, or great coffee that will be able to disguise that one true, glaring, untenable, awful reality. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this? End quote. Rob Bell is not the first false teacher to plant his flag in denying the judgment of God and eternal punishment. I want you to know this is nothing new. That we, yes, we live in a world that cringes at the idea of God's future judgment. Yes, we live in a world that rejects the notion of having a holy God who reminds us that we are guilty and finite and will give an account before him. This is nothing new. That rejecting God's judgment was the primary heresy taught by these false teachers in this church that Peter wrote to. And their claim was that there's no evidence of God intervening and judging the world in the past, and so therefore God will not judge humanity in the future. That's the crux of their argument. Joel last week introduced us to this idea, this concept of false teachers in uh, verses 1 through 3. We're going to return to that idea next week and the week following. But today, in verses 4 through 9, Peter will specifically address and correct the false teacher's core destructive heresy by establishing the certainty of God's judgment. That's what verses 4 through 9 are all about. We're going to look at Peter's argument and then we're also going to look at why God's judgment is significant for us, why that's important for us uh, today. So here's uh, Peter's core argument in verses 4 through 9, that God's judgment in the past on the ungodly guarantees his future judgment. Okay, Peter uh, is responding to these false teachers who are basically saying, look, Peter, this is just a clever myth, the idea that God's going to judge us in the future. So Peter's responding and essentially is saying, where in the world did you come up with the idea that God will never judge anybody? The Bible is filled with, with history and, and events and, and actual uh, scenarios in which God does the opposite. 
that God has always judged the ungodly and he will continue to do so. That's his argument. And so to, to build his case, Peter uses three historical examples of God exercising judgment in verses four through six. Now, each of these three examples, if you look in the word, verses four through six, you can see that each of them are first introduced with if clauses. This leads us to conclude that this is very intentional by Peter. Peter is deliberately stacking one example on top of the next as he builds and argues his case. So let's look at each example just briefly here, starting in verse four, the first example uh, in verse four, the fallen angels. Peter describes these angels who sinned and then were casted into hell and are chained with gloomy darkness until the final judgment. Now, there are several fascinating theories out there about what this exactly refers to. Uh, I'm going to avoid going through, going down bunny trails here because the most, I think, convincing view, what Peter's likely referring to, is not the initial or first fall of the angels, but that he's referring to specifically the account in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, which, look, admittedly, is a very bizarre and, and crazy passage. In that passage, the angels there saw the women on the earth and saw that they were beautiful. They took them as wives, and they had offspring. Offspring were called uh, Nephilim, and they were known as giants among uh, the earth. Now, this was, of course, sinful. This greatly displeased the Lord. This went against uh, the created order. And so judgment came in two forms. Punishment came in two forms. First, in Genesis 6, God uh, began to limit human lifespan to 120 years. But then secondly, according to Peter, uh, God did not spare these fallen angels. God secured their doom by chaining them up in darkness until the final judgment. Jude 6, I think, reinforces uh, this specific account where it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until, or under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Okay? Here's Peter's main point. Peter uses this as an example to show us that not even the angels who fell escaped judgment. So why will we? Of course we will not if they did not. Okay, so that's the first example. Peter doesn't stop there, though. Remember, he's building his case, his argument. He uses a second example in verse 5 of the ancient world during Noah's day. This also takes place in Genesis 6. Of course, Peter's talking about the cities of the world that perished during the flood because of the great wickedness throughout the earth at this point in time. Genesis 6-5 literally describes that day as every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. And so while God kept and guarded and preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness and his family, God exercised judgment upon the rest of the ungodly world by sending a flood and destroyed them. Now, this is a, an interesting example that Peter gives here. This is actually a level of, of foreshadowing of what will happen in the future. Peter will actually talk about that in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, that this uh, account of God's judgment in the past in Genesis 6, of God sending a flood and destroying the ungodly, 
God will do something very similar in the future uh, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, but won't use water. He will use fire and will destroy uh, the earth. So that's the second example. But notice the third example here in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah. This historical event also happened in Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. And during the ancient world, Sodom and Gomorrah were known for two things. One, they were incredibly wealthy and prosperous. Uh, but secondly, they were known for their wickedness, uh, their sinfulness. And so God exercised judgment on these cities by destroying them with fire, leaving them to ashes. Okay, now these are three examples. There, there are many more. In fact, one commentary said this, that the motif of the destruction of these cities by fire became an illustration of divine judgment that appears again and again in biblical literature, such as Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 38, Amos 1. Fire becomes the instrument of judgment that destroys the inhabitants except for the godly. Okay, this is a very clear point by Peter. He's laying out this three-point argument, again, that God's past judgment guarantees his future judgment. Very clear. But that's not the only thing that Peter wants us to learn about the judgment of God. Remember, Peter is a loving shepherd. He is trying to help his flock expose these false teachers, these wolves in sheep clothing, by reinforcing the correct doctrine of God's judgment so that this church can sniff out the false doctrine and stand firm upon the truth. So there's more here. In fact, the end of verse 6 beckons us to draw out more of what we can learn. He says that, that we have these as examples of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So Peter lists these things as examples. What do you do with examples? You learn from them. You draw them out. So what I want to do here in the next couple of moments is just highlight four more aspects about God's judgment that we can learn from this passage that I think is really helpful for all of us. Here's the first one, is that God's judgment is actually ongoing in the present. I think it's a mistake to believe that God's judgment is only reserved for some time in the future, known as the final judgment. Of course, that's true, and we'll get to that in a moment. But there is very good reason to believe that God exercises some of his judgment right now in the present. You could call it judgment. You could call it wrath. You could call it discipline. You could call it consequences. We see that in each of these three historical examples. To state the obvious, God did not suspend his judgment on the fallen angels, the ancient cities in Noah's day, or Sodom and Gomorrah for some time in the future. God exercised his judgment swiftly right there in the present. Furthermore, Jesus said this about the judgment being ongoing. John 3, he says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the judgment has come in, and specifically here, when you are living in works of, of, of evil and, and deeds that are disobedient to God, the result is that you live in darkness. That's part of God's judgment upon the world. Even Paul in Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is being revealed. 
not will be revealed, is being revealed. And in verses 18 through 32 of that first chapter of Romans, Paul explains what he means by that, that as humanity lives without God being the center, without God being the king, it leads to a type of lifestyle that is very dysfunctional, that is destructive, that invokes these, these really hard and, um, and difficult consequences. And that's, that's part of the way that we experience the judgment of God, the consequences of our sinful choices that we endure. Now, not every consequence that we face is part of God's judgment, but some of them um, actually are. So they're ongoing. It's in the present. Secondly, though, another thing we can learn about God's judgment is that it is also in the future, right? This is known as the final judgment, it, kind of this moment where there is a clear division between those who belong to Jesus and will reign with Jesus forever and those who do not. Now, there are two main judgments that will occur in the end. It's judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 and then the great white throne judgment in Revelation. The great white is, is reserved for uh, those who, are, who do not belong to Jesus. The judgment seat of Christ is for the believer. Now, God's wrath is being stored up as well for the unrighteous, for the unrepentant, and will be poured out in full on that final day of judgments. This is what Peter is specifically referring to in our passage in verses 5 and 9, this judgment in the future as well. And then thirdly, another aspect about God's judgment we can learn is that they will be accord, God's judgment will be according uh, to works. We see that in each of these three historical examples. The fallen angels, uh, these ancient cities in Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah, were all judged because of the wicked and evil deeds. Now, this does not uh, contradict or it's not in conflict with our belief that you are justified by faith alone in Jesus. You are declared righteous because of Jesus, because, of course, in order for your faith to be real and genuine and saving, one must have good works to accompany that faith. We're reminded in James 2 that even the demons believe and shudder, and yet they do not have saving, real, genuine faith. So it's our good works that demonstrates if our faith in Jesus is actually real. And so for the believer, as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged according to our works and rewarded accordingly. A couple passages that talk about this. Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see that reinforced in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be judged based on what family you were born into based on your last name, based on your parents' faith or the faith uh, of, your, of your pastor or the faith of, of the people around you. You'll be judged based on what you have done in the body. And I think that this also speaks into the negative effect of, of what has been called this easy believism that has started to creep into the church. This idea that all you need to do in order to be saved is pray a prayer, walk down the aisle, fill out a card, and you're good. The problem with those things is that none of those, none of those things are in the Bible. 
Those things, those are not what saves us. Just because you've prayed a prayer, that you've recited some magical formula, that's not what justifies you. And I've, I've seen and I've encountered so many people who prayed some prayer when they were six or went to some church camp, walked down the aisle, or the, the aisle and recited some kind of words or formula and then lived the rest of their life however they wanted and yet they think they're going to heaven. That's called false assurance. And so if you're here today and you think, well, you know, I'm at church today, but you know, I'm a Christian because I, I prayed that prayer or I remember some moment, and yet you live just like an unbelieving neighbor or coworker, there's no fruit, there's no works that support your faith in Jesus, that is false assurance. So my question for you today is what fruits in your life right now can you point to and say, this is evidence of my faith in Jesus being genuine and real and saving. Jesus would call it Matthew 7, that, that you will know them by their fruits. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, there will be many who come to me on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I've done for you. And yet he will turn them away because they did not know Jesus. Look, we will stand before God and give an account based on our works. And then fourthly, another thing that we learn about God's judgment is that it is inescapable. All people will be judged. Acts 10.42, it says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the appointed one by God to judge the living and the dead. So no one's going to escape this. No one's going to kind of slip on by the holy, righteous judge and go on for all of eternity. All will stand before God. This is really the crux of Peter's argument. He's saying, look, God judged the angels who sinned, showing us that no one is too high or exalted uh, to be judged. Even the angels were judged. That God judged the ancient world in Noah's day, showing us that God doesn't judge or grade on a curve doesn't compare people, that God's judgment is inevitable. And then God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, showing us that even the prosperous will be judged, even the successful, even the wealthy will be judged. His judgment is inescapable. Okay, Peter is driving home this point. He's trying to help these believers who were being swayed by the ungodly, immoral, false teachers. And he uses these three examples to remind them that the ungodly have no reason to think that they can escape God's judgment. That God's judgment is certain, it will be swift, and it is sure. Even reminded Jesus' words in Luke 10, when he says, those who reject the truth, which would include the false teachers, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for them. Wow, that is a, a harsh statement, but real statement by Jesus. So this is Peter's three-point argument for the judgment of God, verses four through six. It's firmly established, but that's not the only thing that Peter talks about in this passage. Peter has a second significant point that is just as important in verses seven through nine, and it's this, that God's past deliverance foreshadows his future deliverance. You'll notice again in verse seven, another if clause, and this he is using to introduce the example of righteous lots. 
Peter uses that example, and you could throw in Noah in verse 5, Noah and his family, to argue the fact that our God is a God of deliverance, that God knows how to rescue his people. Now, admittedly, Lot is an interesting example to supply. Uh, He calls Lot righteous three different times in this passage, but if you know Lot's life in Genesis, you're like, man, I don't really see the righteousness. That's not very clear. He was far from perfect. And yet, by God's grace, he avoided becoming fully contaminated with the wickedness in Sodom. That even though he was surrounded by the atrocious sinfulness, God demonstrated his power by rescuing Lot in the midst of the ungodly. Look, this takes us to the most powerful point in this passage. Verse nine, notice the only, uh, the only then statement in the passage. It says this in verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Like feel Peter's point here. You're supposed to feel kind of the buildup from verse four all the way to verse nine as he gets to the climax and the apex of his argument. He says, if God did A, if he did not spare the fallen angels, and if God did B, he did not spare the ancient cities in Noah's day, and if God did C, he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, and if God did D, uh, where he rescued righteous Lot, then, then, we can firmly conclude this, that without a shadow of doubts, with full confidence, we know that God can rescue and deliver the godly. And we know that without a shadow of doubt. This is what God does. This is what he specializes in, if you will, rescuing his people, guarding his people, protecting his people, preserving his people until the very end. He's been doing it for thousands and thousands of years, and we can trust him to continue to do so in our lives. See, Peter's second point is so significant because it balances the first one, that the preservation and deliverance of Noah and Lot shows us that God knows how to save as well as to destroy. We need both, right? We have his goodness that leads him to delivering the righteous, but also it's his justice that leads him to destroying the rebellious and the ungodly. Both are significant. And some of this, I think, is even coming out of Peter's own story. And we've seen this throughout 2 Peter. Some of his teachings and his emphasis comes from, from what he personally encountered. And if you know Peter's story, of course he could have pointed to the deliverance of his salvation, in his salvation, in his, uh, his testimony of coming in faith in Jesus. But I think Acts 12 is behind this. Acts 12 is a crazy uh, example of God delivering the godly uh, among the ungodly. In Acts 12, we have Peter who is thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. He's chained up and he's actually sandwiched between two soldiers. And he's there in prison. And you're thinking like, how's he going to get out of this one? I'm sure Peter, it's not in the text, but I'm sure he's wondering, I don't know how to deliver myself, but I know the Lord knows how to deliver me from this. And sure enough, God sends an angel and miraculously delivers and rescues Peter, the godly, uh, from that prison. Very significant moment. But also, 
in Acts chapter 12, a little bit later on, you've got not only God who rescues the godly Peter, but he also exercises judgment upon the unrighteous, the, the ungodly Herod. Has an angel strike him down and he is eaten by worms. See, God does both and we need both and we need to be reminded of both, that both are important. Now to maybe apply this to our own lives as we think about verse nine, that's the verse that I want you just to be challenged with and encouraged by this morning. I wonder if there's anybody here that needs to be reminded of the power and the truth of verse nine. You be reminded that God knows how to rescue you from the ungodly, that God knows how to rescue you from the trials that you face, that God knows, and maybe you feel like Peter, where you're in a prison of your own. Maybe you need to be reminded of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that the Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. What a, a powerful truth just to rehearse over your life as you walk through various things in this life, that many times we don't know how. Many times we don't know what to do, but the Lord knows how. Just to rehearse that as you're walking through seasons of uncertainty, maybe seasons where it's just so confusing, you don't know the right decision to make, but out of a demonstration of trust in the Lord, you repeat and train your heart to say, the Lord knows how, right? Maybe you're walking through a painful trial and you don't know if that trial is going to end. There's no end in sight. Train your heart to say, the Lord knows how. Maybe you're faced with just a fiery temptation and you're wondering, how will I remain faithful to the Lord? I don't know how, but the Lord knows how. Maybe you have unfair treatment at work or those hundreds of parenting moments where you just feel so stretched and you don't know how, you don't know what to do to repeat and teach and train your heart. The Lord knows how and to lean into the grace that he will supply. Look, I have found that it is in those moments, those seasons, where all you can say, all you can cry out really, Lord, I don't know how. I don't know what to do, but I know that you know how. I think it's in those moments that you experience in a deeper way, in a more intimate way, the faithfulness of the Lord. It's almost like he needs to bring us to our knees and have us cry out in dependency for us to experience the power of verse nine, that the Lord knows how, and he will rescue you either in this life or the next. Well, before we close, I, I want to just share with us a couple of applications related to the judgment of God. I, I want us to kind of transition, pivot here to start to answer the question, so what? And maybe you're asking yourself that. Maybe each week when we're preaching up here, you're like, okay, that's, that's great, but who cares? Like, why does this matter? Like, so what? Those are good questions to ask, even as you're, you're studying the word on your own, as you, after you answer the, the what question, you get to the so what, the now what, moving towards application, being a doer of the word, not just a hearer, so that's what I want to do here related to the judgment of God. So what? Why does this matter? Here are three reasons why the judgment matters. The first one is this. Because the judgment is real, 
our actions are significant. They are significant. Yeah, I'll just call a spade a spade this morning. It is such an attractive option to want to just dismiss uh, the judgment of God altogether. Right? Like if there's one uh, doctrine that we could just rip out of the Bible, perhaps it would be uh, the judgment of God. We don't always love how that feels, that you'll have to give an account before a holy God. That makes all of us uncomfortable. And yet, that very idea to remove it would not lead to the freedom and liberation that we think. It actually leads to our belittling. Like if you remove the fact that we will be held responsible for how we live and responsible to God, then that reduces us to the level of machines. Think about it. That because we'll be judged based on how we live, that makes everything we do significant and weighty and have eternal implications. I think that's what verses four through nine even warn us about, that God has punished the unrighteous in the past and he'll do it in the future. Like you will stand before God and give an account based on how you lived your life. Everything matters. Every word, every action, every intention of the heart, every motive, every response, every behavior, everything that we do is seen by the all-knowing God. You're not hiding anything from him. You might think you're getting away with things. God sees it. God knows it. And you'll be held accountable for it. And again, yes, we will be declared righteous before God because of our faith in Jesus. Yes, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But our good works, again, justify our faith, make our faith genuine, and can lead to eternal reward. So don't allow God's bountiful grace to discourage good deeds. It should actually do the opposite. And look, this is a, a good reminder for every single one of us that none of our sin will go unnoticed or hidden. That Numbers 32 verse 23 says that your sin will find you out. And so just because you haven't been caught yet, just because you haven't felt the consequences of your sin, don't think that you've gotten away with it. How prideful, how arrogant, how downright blind to think that just because you haven't been caught or you haven't experienced the consequences that you've snuck one by, the, the holy, all-seeing, all-knowing God? No, we're reminded as we think about the judgment of God, we will stand and give an account. All things are seen and known and will be revealed in this life or at the final judgment. So just a reminder, our actions, everything has eternal significance. That's not the only application though. Here's the second one. This is gonna sound strange at first, but I'll unpack it. Because the judgment is real, God comforts his people. I've been thinking and dwelling on this point a lot as I've been thinking about the way that this doctrine and this, under, this truth can comfort us. I think that we're, we're often told that our culture doesn't want an angry, righteous God of judgments. That's what we're told. 
We're told that our culture, our world, cannot handle any more teaching on a God of wrath who will unleash his wrath on the unrepentant. Right? We're told that one of the greatest stumbling blocks to Christianity is the fact that God will judge the world. And yet, I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. Not when I look around and I see and I hear the type of responses out, even in the world, toward evil and injustice. When I hear and I see this righteous anger, if you will, this rage toward the sin and evil and injustice in the world. And we see it all around us, whether it's towards abortions or mass shootings or, or wars that, that, that happen, and the outcry toward the innocent that, that experience evil and injustice. And so I think deep down, we as believers and even the world know that we need a righteous and holy judge who, according to Psalm 711, feels indignation all day long. Because think for a moment, what would be the case if we didn't? It would be a tragedy if we discovered that God never addresses evil in the end. That would be terrifying to, to discover that God is not a righteous judge, that God just never punishes, never condemns, never responds to the wickedness and evil in this world. And I wonder if, if some of us kind of look out and see the evil and some of us wonder, okay, I know God is a righteous judge. I know that he will deal with this, but when? It just feels like the, the ungodly get away with it. You ever just look out and see those things and wonder, will the, just like Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in, in chapter 12, he laments and he says, will the wicked go on prospering? Will the faithless live at ease? We feel that. Kind of have maybe this inward wrestling, maybe this suspicion of will anything be corrected? Will God actually come and avenge all of the evil in the world? Even the psalmist in chapter 10, verse 1, who says and wonders, why does it feel like the Lord hides himself in times of trouble? Look, it's easy for our hearts to kind of tip that way. And yet we need to be reminded our hearts need a God who sees, a God who judges, and a God who punishes all evil. That we need a God to whom we can call to, just like the psalmist in chapter 10, verse 12, who says to God, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted, and for us to have the confidence that he will answer. See, we need a God who judges evil. We need a God who holds the ungodly accountable. So whether or not the, the world around us says, yeah, I can't believe in a God who judges, deep down, we know it and we believe it, that what we absolutely need as humanity is a God who will judge the world. Look, if, if God is a God of love, without the accountability of justice, then evil gets the final word. If there's no final accounting of evil at the end, there's no comfort that we can give to one another that God will make all things right in the end. If God just puts down his gavel once and for all, walks away, 
from being this righteous judge. That creates more problems than solutions. Look, we need a biblical God who gets angry, righteously angry. We need a God who is not a sissy, who does not turn a blind eye to evil. No, we need a strong God who protects his people, who stands for justice, and who will hold all evil accountable, and he will avenge all who have done wrong. That's the God that we have, and that's the God that I think brings comfort as we look out and as we see evil in this world. Rest assured, find comfort that God and his justice will get the final word. Well, this brings us to the last application point, and it's this, that because the judgment is real, eternal deliverance is available. As I think about the judgment of God, as I think about standing before a holy God, knowing my sinfulness, knowing the things that I've done, and maybe for you, knowing all that you have done, how in the world will you and I be delivered? How will we be rescued from being sentenced to eternal separation from God forever and ever because we're actually guilty? How's that going to work? The answer is found in Jesus, that Jesus is our deliverer. He's our rescuer. And look, yes, God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy and love and compassion and didn't leave us in our sin, didn't leave us in our condemnation. He sent Jesus Christ to be our rescuer, that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he, he died in our place, took our penalty, and he did so many amazing things on the cross, but two things that he did, number one, he satisfied God's wrath. He, he absorbed it all. He took it all from the Father. Look, that should have been poured out on you for all of eternity because of your sin. And yet Jesus, the blameless son of God, hung there on the cross. And yes, he went through an enormous amount of physical pain, but he also absorbed the wrath of God for you. And then secondly, Jesus also satisfied the justice of God. The requirements for an acceptable sacrifice was only Jesus. Jesus is the only one perfectly righteous and obedient. And so he also met the requirements of God's justice. It's amazing when you think about the cross, that in Jesus, God holds in balance perfectly his justice and his compassion. He pours out his wrath on Jesus and makes a way for sinners to be accepted and to be made righteous. As one person said it this way, heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. And he did it for you. He did it for you. He did it so that you could no longer be judged as a guilty, condemned sinner. He did it to make a way for you to be righteous. Imagine that. Oh, just take a moment and just maybe even close your eyes and imagine standing before the all-seeing, holy, eternal God, knowing all that you've done, knowing all of the sin 
that you've committed. And yet because of Jesus, that holy, righteous judge declares you righteous, <laughs> accepts you, looks at you, and says, you are clean because of my son. Church, that is what is available for all who trust in Jesus and turn from their sin and follow him with their lives. And if you have not made that decision, we would love to talk to you about that. Be at the next steps table. I'll be down here in the front. We'd love to explain what it means to move from being under God's wrath to being a recipient of God's mercy and to be accepted for all of eternity. The cross is the best example, the best picture of how much God hates injustice and evil. The cross shows God's unleashing grace in Christ and how he upholds both his justice and his compassion. But God's judgment in the past is a guarantee of his judgment in the future, but also God's past deliverance is a foreshadow of the sweet deliverance that we will experience forever and ever. Let's pray together. God, we do give you praise for your mercy, for your deliverance, your great rescue through Jesus. Jesus, we praise you and we will forever praise you and hold up your name as the great rescuer of humanity. God, there was no way for us to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. It's all because of what you have accomplished. So God, we praise you and we thank you for your mercy. We also thank you for your justice. We thank you that you are a righteous judge and that there is judgment, there's accountability. And Lord, I pray that you would use that in our lives to motivate us towards good deeds, to work out our faith in fear and trembling, to on one hand believe that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but on the other, that you will repay those who do good and evil. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.